can't tell you how many sales calls our team has been in where we're like, yeah, we make the lip balm, you know, from raw ingredients, chemical compounding, mixing, filling. And until they actually see it, I think they still hear you pull said lip balm off shelf and put a label around it. I think still we have probably one of the most entertaining industries to work in. And I've loved 99% of it and hated <laughs> 1% of it. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. This is part two of our podcast series exploring what it means to bring a product to market. If you haven't listened to part one, we highly suggest you go back to that one to truly follow the path. Brandon McKay and Brittany David of Snugs walk us through what they have to think about when launching something new. This part covers how they put something to market and what goes into selling. Enjoy. I handle SIG brand, SIG, so it's a retail brand as well. And the mindset of a company that's used to dealing with retail to getting them into promo is kind of like, hey, you can speak this language, time to learn a new one. And Mm -hmm. do you have any examples of sort of what was the win for you in promo with Thermos and what was the win for them for promo in Thermos? I think some of it was dollar volume. And it was what's not moving the needle? What have you done in the past? And what are your aspirations? Pricing and the model is a huge piece of it because you have to bring it to the industry at prices that distributors can sell it for. The end user, as we know, wants to buy it for retail value, even though you add a lot of work into it. And I think for retail, that's hard to have the concept of a cut for the distributor through the end user on top of a cut for the supplier and any decoration and what goes into that. So fortunately, they understood those to begin with that wasn't as mind-boggling to be able to have those pricing conversations. So we told them what our goals were to bring it to the market, which also helped with our product selection. You know, if it didn't make sense for us to all win in that area, then it's probably not a product we're going to add to the line because nobody wants to sell a whole bunch of stuff and not make any money. And so, I mean, even determining what is going to be successful for us and what is going to move and having that aligned. So even as we look to adding new products for Thermos, they know what to pitch for us because they know what model it has to fit in. And not all of their products at this point will work for promo, but it does give them some ideas kind of in the background too, as they work on their own product development and what could sell into both. They do have us at least as I think a data point of what could sell into this channel as well. Yeah. It's getting people to understand like this isn't a fit for it, or even like, I can't print this design, so it's not going to work either is a whole other thing too. Yeah. I'm going to move to marketing now. So we've got, you've come up with the idea, you can figure out, you can produce the idea, and then you move into how do you sell the idea? So you've invested in a lot of video and top quality photography. Like you have an amazing team for that. So what was sort of your reasoning behind that? Now a lot of suppliers are like, yeah, I've got to have good photos. It can't just be white background and Snugs has been kicking it out of the park for ages. So what made you go, yeah, this is where we're going to put our money? Um, I think it kind of goes back to kind of the original statement that we made. We wanted to be cool to ourselves. (laughs) And I think originally way, way, way back, you know, even when I was, you know, more interning and more learning the ropes and I was trying to understand the business, my in-laws, they were always ultra demanding of it has to look good. Whether the finished good has to look good or the marketing materials, the photography has to look good. And even if you flow back through our catalog to 
into the 90s, we always had top shelf photography, always. And the products always looked good and they were always lit well. And we always spent the money not outside to get really, really good photography. And we would travel to get it. It wasn't like, oh, who's the best person in Utah to do it? It was like, you know, the best person to do still product photography at that time was in Portland in the Oregon area because Nike was there, Adidas was there, lots of jewelry manufacturers were there. And so we wanted to really get good, high quality, vibrant color, impactful photography. And so we went there to get it. And I think it kind of transitioned to the point where we had the luxury of getting talent in the building that understood kind of where we wanted to go as we grew and evolved to now we have this amazing freaking top shelf marketing team that, you know, with Brandon Brown and Chris Duncan and Cody, you know, that does the social. And then of course, Jeff Anderton, that does a lot of the video and the photography that we have the pieces that we want and we never settled. I can't ever remember a conversation of product imagery or photography or content or what's the cheapest solution or what's okay. It was always, we want this thing to just be freaking awesome. And if you give that directive, then you get that result. And I don't know, I think it's always been in our DNA to have top shelf retail look like branded content. Yeah, I think you set the goal and you get out of the way of the creative because we have the talent and the brains that just, I think they surpass any vision, at least that I would have, probably Brandon and I both. I mean, they do things that are exponentially cooler or more innovative than I ever could have come up with. They have the vision, they have that creative blood and juice, and they take things to the next level that you're in awe to see what the finished product is. And you know that if you were to meddle in that or try to direct, you'd mess it all up. You just let them go. And they surprise you every day with one-upping each other every single day. And everything just is cooler and cooler and cooler. Yeah, you guys have been the sponsor for videos for our Promo Kitchen Mixers. And every time I see one of them, I was like, that's a cool organization. I should be part of that. (laughs) <laughs> I think we always want agency quality, mm-hmm. you know, and said, Hey, I want this to look like it came out of San Francisco or California or New York or wherever you name the agency resides. I think that's kind of what our demand is, is that we want agency quality, but we want to control all the content internally. Yeah. And it was interesting, Brandon, you were telling me that you actually look on VRBO and Airbnb to find shooting locations. Like it's not sort of like, what can we make the backyard look like? That's the great part about that team is nothing is by mistake, right? They researched the props, they researched the lighting, they researched the outdoor environment, they researched the time of year, they researched the time of day they should shoot. The locations, I mean, they don't mess around. They do a lot of exploration and prepping. Yeah. It puts the rest of us who put portrait mode on to shame. (laughs) So if you could lower the bar, we'd really appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, I still am not allowed to take an iPhone photo of anybody. (laughs) I've been banned from my family. No one in my family lets me take a photo of anybody. They're like, nah, (laughs) your angle's all wrong. You're terrible. Yeah, we all have different skill sets, Brandon. Yeah, delete it. (laughs) (laughs) You just find the good family member who can take a very flattering shot of you. (laughs) The kids. So the work that they put into this, because you have such this wide range of personal use, your Zen line, your Traverse line, even to your boxcar line, what sort of thought did they and do you, if you're allowed any influence there, 
and sort of making it look under the snugs aesthetic? I mean, me personally, and Brittany probably has more influence than I do, but I think for me, they kind of have the keys to the castle. Totally. I think we align. I think they understand the industry and our customer base enough and know what the ultimate outreach is. And when you keep not only our customer, but their customer in mind through the whole process, and you have sales and marketing collaborating together for the same end result of selling more to push in the marketplace, they understand the mission and sky's the limit for them. That's awesome. So you talked earlier about figuring out how to sell something to someone. So you're not kind of hoping that your story gets there. And Brittany, you've talked about having commercials for your products. So what sort of thought process goes into thinking, don't worry, the people will get this. They're not that dumb to, okay, we really need to explain like what this product gets used for and which products do you find that have done better when a commercial has been done for them? Yeah. So I think there's products that are commodity, right? You might sell why a Snugs lip balm is different than another lip balm, but people understand what a lip balm is. And if they're searching for lip balm, they're going to find a lip balm. You have an advertising push behind that, a sales push. We just launched a video that was a case history on boxes, right? So something that we weren't into. And what we kept hearing from distributors is we need more case histories. We need to understand how people are utilizing the product. And marketing created this amazing case history through video that went all the way from the end user of the problem that they were trying to define and the outreach that they had looked for and how they ended up accomplishing it. That is just the very interesting and innovative way to showcase truly that entire journey. So you're not only relying on Snugs telling the message, you're truly going from end user of their entire thought process on marketing this huge item that's new in retail and what their void was and how they had all of this brilliance and momentum, but what they couldn't overcome. And it tells that story. And so then I think it gets people thinking more creatively on, oh, maybe this is a problem other people have, or, oh, here's how there was a solution to this. And so I think the marketing piece of it can truly help tell that story. And I think video and imagery is a great way to do that because us who are visual people like to see something to sometimes connect the dots to make it make sense. Even if it's stirring up somebody's own creativity to get their brain going, that might go a totally different direction, but that was the spark that they needed to understand how they were going to take that and alter it and mix it all up and bring it back around. Nice. Brandon, in having the behind the scenes videos, what value do you think that brings to your audience and your clients? I think it kind of completes the circle for them and it answers a lot of the why can you or why can you not do this? I think it shows them plain as day as far as what we restrict. We really don't restrict anything. If you want to try to duplicate our processes, go ahead because it's going to be awful for you. And no one wants to get into manufacturing, right? It's not like it's the burning platform of the United States saying, how do we become a manufacturer? You know, but I think the whole thesis behind it is I think it answers a lot of the questions and answers a lot of the mystery. And it gives the distributor an opportunity to, you know, forward content to their end user and saying, hey, this is how it's done. And they have a better understanding of what the process is, even inside of the promo industry, they have a better idea of what manufacturing lanes may look like or what decoration methods may look like in high volume production, just not a one-off type of situation. But 
I think for us, we obviously provide a lot of content as far as how it's made and we hope it's useful to people, but we don't have really any restrictions on what we can or can't show. Because like I said, I don't think people are lining up to get into manufacturing. And if we help them produce a good that's better than, you know, so be it. For me, it's kind of the nerdy thing, you know, like I love watching how it's made. Yeah, me too. The hashtag Factory Friday is so interesting. You know, but I watch how it's made all the time on TV. It's like my wife's worst nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) It's so soothing. (laughs) You know, why don't I want to know how a banjo is made? Yeah. (laughs) Well, and we've done so many factory tours with customers and they are always in awe of that piece of it because it's just so inquisitive to see that behind the scenes kind of piece that we've said. How do we bring this to more people so they can experience this too if they're not on our production floor? And I can't tell you how many sales calls our team has been in where we're like, yeah, we make the lip balm, you know, from raw ingredients, chemical compounding, mixing, filling. And until they actually see it, I think they still hear you pull said lip balm off shelf and put a label around it. And then all of a sudden they discover all of the processes. And it's just like this light bulb that's like, this is what you mean. And again, it goes back to that visual representation as opposed to just words of trying to envision it in your own mind. Yeah. Every time I see one of those videos, I'm like, you are charging way too little for lip balms. Like that's, <laughs> that's un- how come they're not $5 each? <laughs> yeah. I think it's such an interesting look in that most people don't see how things are made. Like they don't get how it gets from A to B. And so they don't understand when you say processes and PO problems, that doesn't make sense to them until they see the step one, step 10. Or it may inspire them to be a little bit better on their end, or it may inspire a competitor of ours to be better on their end. Yep. I mean, I think that overall, the better we are as an industry, the better we are as an industry, right? So if we can share a little, give a little, I think the ultimate goal is to make sure that the end user is happy and they buy lots of promotional products. They transition spend away from whatever it is, billboards, mobile app marketing, Facebook, Instagram, SEO optimization, that stuff. We want them to transition their spending dollars away from all of that to promo. Yeah. And for us, we want to look sophisticated and we want our competitors to ship out better quality products at the end of the day. And if they see something that we're doing and they like it, then so be it. And for me, I've been into a lot of other factories inside of the promotional products industry, both domestically and abroad. But let's just say the domestic ones I've been in, they are janky (laughs) and they need help. And, you know, if we can help them out, I think it's better for everybody. Yeah, I love that. Like you want them to look sophisticated. I think it moves what we do, like especially as manufacturers away from brand fill and trinkets and trash to actual promotional material like it's this is an ad the same as you'd have a billboard like how many impressions will this get you and and how you think about that so when you have a product has there been a case of you you're like we're changing the world we've figured out how to make it we've thrown our marketing efforts behind it and then you sell one (laughs) has that happened or or sell more than one where you're just sort of like i've got it we've got the game changer it hasn't happened (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think you always have heroes and zeros. I mean, top of mind, what sucked? I mean, I don't know, Britt, what's a, what's one that we could say that was in hindsight, 
terrible. Yeah. So one, it's another one that we made a tweak to, but we definitely had a big loss in the beginning was we acquired a company called Soul Kicks. Oh yeah. That's a loser. And imprinted shoes. And we're like, we'll do it domestic. We've got it downstairs. And we're like, you know, we've only got about six weeks to launch this at Expo when we rushed through the process. And we're like, well, the color's kind of muted. Well, the imprint doesn't go to the sides. All of these things that like should have been screaming, this isn't going to work the way that you're thinking of doing it. But we launched it and it was exciting and innovative. But for all of the reasons that we knew that wouldn't be successful, it wasn't successful. On top of that, we ended up having a bad inventory mishap of shoes that were too tiny for United States (laughs) feet. I mean, it was all of these different challenges. The pivot that we made is we do still do sole kicks, but we do them overseas, where it's fully customizable and we solved all of the problems that we had identified. Now they're cut and sew. Now we can match the colors. Now the sizing is correct. So it was a bomb at the beginning, but it was still exciting and we got very lost and no one's doing shoes and this is really cool. And then we scaled back and took a breath and changed and spent some money on some mistakes, but learned from it and are hopefully making more money from what we learned. It's one of those cases where technology is quite not there. And (laughs) our theory and our thought and our excitement was ahead of technology. There just wasn't capacity or there wasn't the equipment available that's not even invented yet to be able to pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. Your rosy glasses missed all the red flags and... (laughs) Oh, we saw the red flags. It was <laughs> <laughs> a learning experience. We were more excited about the concept than the problems. Fair enough. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a great example. And we've bought different printing equipment in the past, especially on the digital side. Again, where, you know, it becomes at the end of the day, you're like, oh, that's a $100,000 boat maker. You know? It's worthless for production, so I guess we can tie a boat up to it and throw it in the water. I don't know. It's about all it's good for. That's always the painful one where you're like, you know what? I'm going to use this all the time. And you're like, nope, I can do it better on these ones. Yeah. So moving into like the sales part. So you've launched it and you've put it out there. Like, What are your products that have been the mainstays for you that it's just one of those like don't mess with them and they're perfect? Or do you have products like that? Or is it constant tweaking on your end? I think it's constant tweaking. And maybe Brandon can talk a little bit more about the evolution from kind of the eyewear retainer to the lanyard, from materials to attachments, because he was heavily involved in the ideation. But just to answer that basic question is we're always tweaking. As soon as you think you have something that's perfect, you're likely to miss something that's coming up behind that's more innovative or solves a problem that you didn't see there. So I don't know, Brandon, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the lanyard evolution? That's a good example of that. I mean, I think the lanyard evolution for us was really simple is that there wasn't a lot of like high volume crimping equipment available when lanyards got really, really hot. And we're going like way back to like the mid nineties and, you know, kind of the turn of the century. So things were starting to be cool with lanyards. They were using them for conventions and things like that. Then you hit like nine eleven. And then all workplaces went from, okay, we'll come in and out as you please to secured workplaces like overnight. And so we needed to be able to come up with a concept or a product that you could assemble by hand and not be required to be assembled by equipment. And that's really how we transitioned away from 
kind of the metal componentry to the plastic componentry. And in doing so, it separated us from the world, not just from other lanyard people, but just from the world of other lanyard people. And no one could duplicate it. And by chance, we were smart enough at that time to put some IP behind it. And then the divide just became massive to where, you know, it went from we were sharing the market space with 50 other people to we were taking up the majority of the market space. And us being able to do it on demand, hand assembly, it was plastic, it wasn't metal, it was safe for clean room environments, it was anti-static. I mean, there was just things that just kept adding to the story and lanyards just became a home run for us. Yeah, I think even in the printing process from going from one color screen print to multicolor screen print to dye sublimation full color, there's always a way to evolve or make your product better, but still keeping it in peace with what's selling and what works. I didn't think about sort of the impact of like 9-11 on lanyards. So what work do you guys do to kind of like beyond listening to customers and sort of watching trends like that? When it became everyone needs a lanyard, was that just a surge in orders that got your attention? Or were you kind of watching like societal trends or work trends that would change your focus on what you were selling? Or was it just no one predicted it? Everyone was surprised at the moment. It was like COVID. Something similar to like that. You know, it went from a moderate segment to a massive segment almost overnight. And I think some of the ability that we had to process away from metal to plastic before that helped us be able to sustain the massive growth. Because at that time, we were just throwing bodies at it. We didn't need CapEx for customized automated equipment. We just needed bodies. You have these ones that are your constant and mainstays and go up and down. What happens when you're sort of looking at a product and you're like, it's at the end of its lifestyle? Like, how do you figure out that it's kind of a done product for you? I think some of it's trends, some of it's data, and some of it's gut feel. I mean, I think we're going through it right now as we look at masks, right? Masks were huge, then they dipped. Now masks are resurging. And it's something that we had to make a call for inventory for us too. Like, do we innovate the mask? Do we try to add new features? Do we think that the life cycle is done for inventory? Do we sell through what we have? Do we place more? And I think your gut just tells you what the right answer is and you all agree and you move forward and you figure out what the risk is versus what the reward is. And then you figure out where your appetite is. And so if that's not where growth is going to be, where do you find it next? Or if that's where you're hedging, how do you ensure that you're making the best calls? Here's the thing. So you've figured it out. It's at the end of its lifestyle. You're not ordering any more inventory. What work goes into what you do order? Like, What do you figure out for forecasting just for raw materials? I know things like spray containers for hand sanitizer. Like, You can't forecast that you're going to need billions of them. But Mm -hmm. what data do you put into other product lines? Yeah, some of it's just based on trending, right? It's a lot easier with your top sellers that you don't imagine are going anywhere. If I had to put all of my money on something, we'd be selling cleanse pens next year and the year after, right? So you go off of data, you try to figure out what your over is for that, what your sell through is. So a lot of that's analytical, especially things that don't expire. So plastic is not going to expire, but beeswax would. So you want to make sure you have multiple vendors set up, what is easy to get, how quickly can you do those kinds of things. 
as far as forecasting, holy cow, I wish I had someone's crystal ball that had a little bit better projection than mine. And I feel like I have talked to the wisest people in this industry that I could possibly connect with. And it seems like they're using the same one that I have. And (laughs) again, they go off of their best data and gut feel because especially with it being B2B, it is very hard to control that end result with the consumer. You don't know what they're buying is. You don't know what you're up against. And sometimes our distributors don't either, right? Sometimes it's their best guess as much as we say, plan, plan, or try to forecast this stuff. Sometimes they don't know either, but you're even one step further removed. And so for some of that stuff on trending and what you order, sometimes you have to jump on it and jump on it early on a whim and you hope that you succeed more than you fail. But I think you have to take risks and you have to be okay with failure. You hope that it's less expensive than all of your wins. But if you're trying to bat a thousand, I mean, you're never going to succeed and be at bat in my opinion, because I think that you're playing it way too safe to be able to actually grow. You're living in a place that's too comfortable, which usually means you become extinct. Well said. We don't want to be extinct. No. (laughs) You want to be nimble and fun. (laughs) We want to be here for the the next 30. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I found the hardest thing when I moved from acrylic, which was 100% custom to forecasting for SIG, which is set product styles and colors was like, all of a sudden it'd be like, I'm like, I'm going to be really cautious on this one color, like flamingo pink. You're just like, don't think it's going to do it. And then all of a sudden an order comes in. They're like, we're going to need this much flamingo pink. I was like, what? Like, no. Why? Why? (laughs) How do you plan for those giant surges for the one colors where it comes out of the blue, where they're just sort of, hey, we're going to take all the teal green you have, and we're going to want even more. Do you plan for that? Or is it kind of like, no, guess what? You're going with white. It's a group effort. I mean, I think there's a lot of trust in people that are ultimately making those decisions. But we also have a lot of eyes on the data. I mean, our purchasing team is definitely looking at things that Brand and I aren't looking at daily. For sure. And so you've got people that that is their job and responsibility to be saying, hey, we should do this. Have we considered this? We should probably stop doing this to try to get ahead of it. And I think any time that we've wanted to take a risk, we look around the room and say, yay or nay. And if we're all aligned with it being a risk, then you do it and you go in and you don't point fingers and you don't play the blame game. You go in and like I said, if it's a mistake, you learn from that. And if you find a niche or find a win, you do more of it. And I think a great case study right now is Boxcar. Yep. It took a tremendous amount of capital for it. And it felt like something that we would be proficient in and we could do well at and we signed some very large purchase orders to get the equipment in-house to be able to pull it off. And so we just went through that process recently. Yeah. In the middle of a pandemic saying, hey, we feel like there's a market segment here. We feel like we could do well at it. We should spend some money in it. Yeah. <laughs> and go and spend a lot of money on it. Mm-hmm. Do you have a goal in mind when you're expanding? So moving into boxcars, sort of you're like, this is what's going to work and this is how we're going to be. Do you see yourself moving into different categories or after spending all that money on Boxcar, you're like, we're going to wait a second? Or do you have big plans to be a one-stop shop? I think Brittany and I and a few other people are, you know, we're way over our ski tips all the time here. (laughs) (laughs) World domination, not yet. (laughs) We're always excited to 
chase the next shiny object. I think we're better at keeping the kind of the, the bumper rails up to, so we don't gutter ball as many, you know, as often anymore. So I think we're always looking for the next opportunity. We're in process of many next opportunities right now as we speak. So there's no, there's no latent capacity in our brains of new ideas. Yeah. <laughs> no limit yet. None. None, none. I mean, we have more ideas than we have the ability to finance. <laughs> I'm curious, would you share one of your ideas where you're like, you know what, this is a category we haven't touched, but things, you know, planning or everything's secret? Everything's always secret, right? <laughs> but there's a few larger categories within our industry that we feel like we could throw our weight into. And we're not looking to be the category dominant representative of that category. We just want a piece of a pie. We don't want the pie. And we feel like we have the vehicle and we have the talent and the expertise here on premises to jump into some of these other arenas. Well, and I think one that's definitely no secret is drinkware. I mean, we entered with Thermos less than 12 months ago. We also onboarded a brand called Quench that's more of your economy skews. And I think that we found a niche there and plan to be a major drinkware player. And so that is an area that we will continue to innovate and move forward in. Like Brandon said, we don't have to be number one. I don't think our goal, even though we're super competitive and you see that out there, but I think those people push you to do better. But I think that we can service that category really well. And like Brandon said, we've got our eyes on some other things and hope to be making some big moves. We'll just see what you snugs it up with. <laughs> we still have a little gas in the tank. <laughs> well, we'd love to hear that. So is there anything else you want to cover or just sort of like, I wish people knew more about this as part of our process, anything that I've missed so far? I think for me, as I reflect back, which I can say career now, because it's not like I'm in my first couple of years, right? Yeah, your temporary is over. <laughs> yeah. As I reflect back at where I kind of am at in my career, and I waited against peers, both personal friends and extended friends, I think still we have probably one of the most entertaining industries to work in. And I've loved 99% of it and hated <laughs> 1% of it. But I think overall, I think we have an industry that is all encompassing of everything and everyone. And that's what I've loved about it. You know, and we all have our own little weird quirks and weird things and behaviors and things like that. But at the end of the day, we have a really tight knit industry, I believe. And even through this COVID cycle, you know, we ran out of products and we ran out of materials and we ran out of things that were pertinent to our business and, you know, put our reach out there within the industry and had other vendors, competitors of ours bail us out. And I think that's what's great about promo is saying, hey, I have a need and we are in super big trouble. And they say, sure, take some of mine. And I think that's what's great about promo. Yeah, I'm super grateful for our team at Snugs and the opportunities that we have and the opportunities that we create for others. And I think to Brandon's point, I think that that team goes broader than the company. It's our customers, it's our competitors. I feel that there really are very few trade secrets, right? We've all got access to Google and a lot of smart brains that if you want to find something, you can. But the way that this industry comes together and the way that we innovate, I think will be imperative to 
the image of this industry as we continue to evolve. And it's fun to be part of that. It's fun to be a leader in that and at the forefront of people's minds. And I hope that other suppliers and distributors continue to push kind of the bounds of the industry, whether it's in product, whether it's in marketing, whether it's in innovation, whether it's services, because I think it makes us all stronger. But even through all the chaos that we've had for the last, you know, 18 months plus, still fun. And there's still a ton to do and accomplish and a ton of fun to be had. So I'm just super grateful for our team and what's going on. Amazing. Well, thank you both for your time today. And I really appreciate you sort of pulling back the snugs curtain on what you do and the work that goes into getting a product out there. So really appreciate it. And thank you for your time. Thanks for talking with us. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.